You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 5th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, folks. How are you? How is everyone doing? It's been so long since I've talked to you guys. I know. (laughs) It's been less than 24 hours. Yeah, we recorded a special live show yesterday. This show will go up. uh, My plan is that it will go up on Monday, so two days after this episode goes up. In other words, February 10th. So look out for that bonus episode on February 10th. Time is all wibbly-wobbly. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, guess what happened today in 1855? Um, wrong. Satan himself walked the earth on the Oh, yeah, nights. that's right. Yep. And I missed mm-hmm. that. It's Damn. easy to forget. I mean, he made a lot of noise. There was burning buildings. Oh, right? no, no, no. He was, he was very quiet about it. This it was, was Ninja Satan. Really, it was really low key. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, all he did <laughs> was key. leave. He left some footprints. <laughs> like, like tiny clip clop. Like, like hooves. They look oh, like said, hooves. Yeah. Cloven hoof prints. But yes, they must have been yeah. huge. Like they must have been the size of like buildings, right? They were several inches long, three inches across, and about eight and 16 inches apart. And, but they, they must uh, have like melted the earth or, or some they melted, earth, a little fire. Yes. Actually, they melted the snow that they were on ever so slightly, leaving a delicate impression of the tiny hoofs. Like, so was footprint. it real snow or was it that fake snow that's been falling? <laughs> well, they didn't have the fake snow back in oh, 1855. Uh, so, yeah, this was 100% real snow. <laughs> this is uh, also definitely confirmed to have been Satan. There's no other theory. The hoof prints... Uh, went all over town. This was in, uh, Devon, England. Actually, across a few towns, um, 40 to 100 miles in distance. And the hooves didn't just go, like, along the ground. They were unbroken as they went, like, up walls and over haystacks and roofs and through rivers. And, you know, so it was definitely, because that's how Satan rolls. So it was definitely Satan. You mean that's um, how Satan some... strolls? <laughs> yes. Yes, that is exactly how Satan strolled. But then, I mean, give uh, me something, Rebecca. At the end of his big nighttime snow-laden journey, uh-huh. he at least ended up at a bar or, <laughs> you know, outside of an impressive well, chapel, it's... something. It's hard to say where he ended up because all of the witnesses seem to report different things. And uh-huh. over time, they kind of conflated like, well, I saw prints over here and others saw prints over there. Uh, Wait, I'm prince pr- was there? Prince is in, no, 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 as in footprints. Yeah, not the musician. I want to make that oh. absolutely clear. Because uh, that would have been pretty Satan. badass. I mean, if he ended up like at a Prince concert. I've heard Prince bats for the other team compared oh. to Satan. So... No, he wouldn't have anything to do with that. All right, so this is like the lamest Satan sighting of all time. <laughs> That's why this is famous, right? I guess it was, you know, put yourself in the 19th century, Can February, snowy, every, you know, like every, it's just snow everywhere and farmland. There's nothing better to do 
but be super scared about Satan stalking around your town. So this was big news back then. Although, uh, as big as the news was, nobody really made much of it until the 1950s when somebody <laughs> found uh, documents discussing the incident and they looked into it and found that uh, this is what happened according to a local vicar. I'm going way out on a limb here. But is it possible that that actually wasn't Satan, that maybe it was a horse? Well, some skeptics do think that some of the prints may have been made by a horse or a pony, maybe, or a donkey. Or mice. Or it may have been mice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mice? No, seriously? Yep. Hopping rodents like wood mice. Uh, Their whole body print could be mistaken as like a hoof print, you know? Yeah. So what do they throw Uh, themselves like, you know, 10 inches forward and they they land? Yeah. Like imagine you're in snow well above your tiny little head. It's the best way to get around. Yeah. So that was uh, uh, another thing was kangaroos. Maybe it might have been kangaroos. Um, (laughs) That was according to the reverend who uh, later said he just made that up so that the townspeople would stop panicking about Satan. Which, you know, kudos to the Reverend for <laughs> trying to calm everybody down. But really? Can't so the, the weird thing is, the only thing we're sure of is that it wasn't Satan. Well, now, let's not be so hasty. I mean, probably it wasn't Satan. But, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't think any of us could say for sure that Satan did not leave tiny little footprints all over a snowy village in the 19th century. Satan works in mysterious ways. It is offered as an example of mass hysteria. You know, essentially, mm-hmm. once the word gets out, then people look for stuff. You know, then they they see weird prints in the snow they don't recognize, and that becomes part of the legend and just keeps growing and spreading. Then you get a community panic. You know that there's you know Satan mm-hmm. was hopping through oh you know along the rooftops the night before. I mean, did anybody uh, end up getting killed because of this? You know, like witches and whatnot. Oh no. 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 This this story completely sucks. All right, here's what I conflate this with another one which I like much better. Pandas. No, no, no. It's not the, the panda sp- one? The legend of the spring-heeled jack. You guys ever hear that? Oh yeah. Yes. I have heard of spring-heeled uh, jack. Sounds like a rabbit. Yeah. No, it's a, the spring-heeled jack. It's like a demonic guy who can jump really high. That's oh. And that's Of course. It. And he terrorizes the neighborhood, but doesn't really do anything. It's just like people think they see him. You know, yeah, it's also like the Jersey Devil. Jersey Devil also gets a lot of these, like, oh, I saw footprints. And ha- having grown up in South Jersey, you know, I was very disappointed to never actually see any evidence of the Jersey Devil. But I don't know. Actually, when when I was a kid, though, like these stories scared the hell out of me, including this one, the Devil's footprints. Like I found it just incredibly creepy. But also, I thought that the Devil was a real thing at the time. So. So, but, but the, neither of these guys, the devil or Satan or in Springheeled Jack was his name, Steve? Yeah, Springheeled Jack. Isn't that so, isn't that so awesomely quaint? Yeah. It yeah it's like quaint. 1837, oh, yeah. I think is when it peaked. Is this like Springheeled Jack? This is what passed <laughs> for an urban legend in London in 1800s. Right. Yeah, it does you kind know. of sound like Jack the Ripper type name. Yeah. But, but the thing is, like, so these two stories, <laughs> though, like, Quite Nothing happens though, right? Spring Hill Jack is seen jumping, but he doesn't jump on anybody's face or do anything <laughs> remotely story-like other than just jump. No, because if if he <laughs> jumped on someone's face, you would know exactly what he was. And yeah. the 
creepiness of this comes from the fact that it remains a mystery. Yeah. You, you dig? Maybe I'm just <laughs> affected by modern movies and storytelling. You're but I, I need blood. I need, like, special effects, explosions, melting lava. I need it all. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hoof prints do nothing for me anymore. That doesn't cut it. Doesn't strike fear into your heart. No. <laughs> what about zombies? <laughs> you know, zombies have been known, not, not to fully scare me, Steve, but I mean, I think I get more excited about the idea of um, going on a shotgun rampage. What about uh, computer network zombies? That is a completely <laughs> different thing. Right. Like, as a, you know, think about it. It is kind of scary to know at this very moment, millions of computers around the globe, I mean, literally right now are infected with malware. You know, and, and I'm not just talking about the the kind of malware that's trying to get some information off the computer. Like these computers are doing things; they're being directed by by whoever is in control of them to do a lot of different things. They're called botnets or robot networks. That's where that's where botnet comes from. So botnet is, like I said, a collection of computers that are all infected with malware, and somebody somewhere is controlling their particular botnet. And they're directing all of these computers to do illegal things like send spam. You know, like a lot of times when you get spam in your email, you know, we, we all probably get it every day. That most of the time, that's, that's not coming from some particular server somewhere. That's coming from a lot of people's home PCs that are on right now. Um, the other big one, which a lot of you I'm sure know about, is something called a distributed denial of service attack. Uh, I think I've heard Steve, that. I, I actually think science-based medicine had couple of these over the years. Yeah. So anytime you hear about hackers taking down some somebody's website, they're probably using a botnet to make millions of requests to a server. And this results in overloading the server's ability to handle all the requests. And it's very simple. You know, you just get a bunch of computers that are making making so many requests that the server can't possibly handle all of them and a lot of different things can happen. But the end result is just typically that server is no longer accessible by anybody until the people that run that server can figure out what's going on, you go in, um, change the programming, and try to block, you know, the IPs or whatever they have to do. You know, this myriad of things they have to do to handle those types of attacks. For historical purposes, we've all been alive during some of the worst DDoS attacks. The CIA was attacked. Sony PlayStation. Remember when they got hacked and all the found out that Sony had no real protection on their network, yeah. which was crazy. Ooh. But the, um, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange had a DDoS attack. Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, WordPress, all of these companies had massive DDoS attacks that, that did significant damage. You know, in like Sony's case, it's pretty, you know, significant damage to their reputation and to income and everything. So this is serious. It's very serious and it's happening every day, everywhere. And like we said, Bob, should be very unhappy. You should be very happy. These computers are called zombies. Oh, I do. I love it. Any application of that word is fun. So researchers are Anatha and colleagues at PSG College of Technology in Coimbatore, India, are using a statistical tool named the Hidden Semi-Markov Model, or an HSMM. And this is this is really complicated. I've read a lot about this, and I'm just trying to figure out an easy way to say it without taking away all the meat, and I couldn't. It's just that complicated. To summarize, though, using that statistical tool, what they'll do is they'll build software that uses that tool. And that software makes predictions about what a process will do, or actually will do next, using only the present information or state of the system at that time. So 
it said that the predictions made are just as good as if you knew the full history of the computer. Let's say that um, you're comparing the activity of a computer that happened over a month versus the activity that happened over the last few seconds. They're saying that they can make predictions that are really accurate or just as good as if you knew the full history of the computer because all that matters is the current state of the transaction or the transmission that that computer is doing at that moment. And what they say they can do is that they can detect malware instantly. They can see right through the disguise that the malware, you know, it's trying to hide its activity, but this software, supposedly, according to the researchers, can instantly see it. They can, they can recognize the zombie computers that were on a, a network in their laboratory. And, wow. you know, then the software can, can locate the origin of the command and get rid of it. That is a huge claim. I'd love for it to be true, but I have to predict, I don't think that it's just going to be installed on your computer and the whole zombie botnet DDoS thing goes away. I really don't see that happening. I think what they'll do is they'll create another piece of, uh, you know, antivirus software that works that'll have to be updated all the time. There's just no way hackers are going to lay down or not be able to beat this. They just find different ways to hide themselves. Jay, what do you think about this notion? Right now, um, protection from this sort of thing is essentially up to the individual. You know, I have to load software onto my computer that would protect it from be- becoming recruited into a botnet. Um, or, you know, if you work for an institution or a company, that it's done at the company level. But there's really nothing done at the internet level. Service providers have some spam blocking and stuff like that, but nothing really heavy duty. If we're going to really combat this, does, does there need to be like internet wide solutions, you know, where the, the proper software is pushed? If you're like, if you're on the internet, you get pushed software that protects you from being your computer for being recruited as a botnet. You mean kind of like, you know, adding fluoride to the water system, like all yeah. internet will have. I, I, you know, that's a <laughs> really, really interesting notion, Steve. And I, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if, you know, if you think about it, like your computer is connecting to a server, right? To get, yeah. you know, as soon as you get out of your house and you go through the, the, your local ISP, you know, you're hopping from computer to computer to computer to get to the server that you want to get to. Well, I mean, it could be done. At the ISP level, you know, how many are there in the world, you know, and if they were all forced to provide a certain basic level of uh, anti-malware security and automatically, well, first of all, they can handle it maybe at their end, but also push it to all of, it's part of the contract. You have to accept our malware because it's, it's like hygiene for the internet, you know, it's like herd immunity. Yeah, it's the people who are not who don't have anti-malware software on their computers are the ones that are getting recruited and are sending me spam. Well, the thing that I would think of first, I, I I would imagine that the amount of processing that would need to be done would have to be huge. Like you know, an ISP might have a, hundreds of thousands of people on their network. So I don't know if like you know a server farm could handle that. Well, oh, that gets Jay. That gets distributed too. I mean, the whole my point is you distribute it to every computer that you're serving. Oh yeah, that's what I would. Yeah, but then you know it's no different. It's no different than you having to purchase it yourself. Other than you're just getting into a contract with them. I mean, I like the idea of well, it's automatic, so then compliance goes way up. But I I I like what your original statement made me think of, which was having this happen more on the uh, the internet provider level that would be pretty cool I don't know if if like I said if processing can handle it if you know or not I'm really not sure but that's really 
That's interesting. I had an internet provider that gave free malware, you know, McAfee mm-hmm. ma- malware at one point. Um, it was kind of required, but I don't, I don't really remember how that worked back in the they day, st- but they stopped. Did, yeah, did it, it was, you know, at one point, at one point when I set up my internet connection, it was part of the process of, of setting it up was you had to install this, you know, malware. Yeah. Um, but the I, thing is, I certainly can understand, like, if people's response are, are like, I don't want, you know, the nanny state or big brother or whatever spying on my computer and telling me what I have to load onto my computer and do. But when you think about it, if you don't have this software running, then, then malevolent forces are going to be spying on you and you putting stuff on your computer you don't want there. You know what I mean? You don't have a choice. Some, somebody is going to be putting stuff on your computer against your will, you know, if you don't protect yourself. It might as well be the good guys who are trying to protect you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, of course, yeah, the big brother thing is always a concern. I, and I, I get that. I get that. It's, it, there's no excuse though today, Steve. I mean, really, we, we're suffering from people's laziness because there's a ton of free, excellent malware software out there. Like Avast is, is one that I, you know, I've been using recently. They're great. It's a great piece of software. It's free. It uploads itself. It's really easy to use. There's just no excuse. What we need to do. Does it slow down your processor? I mean, and I've heard people complain about that. You start adding all these things and it's really hampers your performance. Well, some of them, sure, but I haven't noticed anything with Avast. You know, there's malware bits. There's, um, you know, AVG. There's a ton of companies out there that provide these free services. Yeah, um, it's the real-time protection that slows down your computer. But you don't have to have all the bells and whistles running. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it doesn't need to inspect every single thing that comes in and out of your computer. Just the big yeah. stuff. I mean, Just the know, big stuff, yeah. Yeah. And it'll, it would whack it way down, but you know, these millions of computers out there, you know, you have, you know, grandmothers running a computer at this point that don't know what they're doing. I mean, I know mm. so many people that are in my, you know, immediate family that just have no idea that, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know about, you know, what's on my computer. Can you help? <laughs> we you were going to talk about this on a, on a show, but I didn't, I think it just, we never, it didn't make the cut, but there's a new, a new type of malevolent software where they, they hijack your computer and then they ransom it back to you. Oh, they yes. take all your files. They lock them down. So if you want all your files back, you got to pay us, guys. And well, and what's right. what's amazing is that started as a just a, a trick. So somebody would be, um, someone would get the virus on the computer, and it would pop up and say, you know, we're going to delete everything on your computer in ten minutes if you don't wire money to blah blah blah. Uh, mm-hmm. But then. These guys recently, like just in the last six months, I think, figured out how to actually do it. Uh, and apparently they've been completely on the up and up. They've been, they've been remarkably honest in that, uh, they, they have the people wire them the money and then they do actually give them the key to unlock the thing along with tips on how to protect their computer next time. Right. Oh my God. That's right. They do. Guys, I, I can't give many details, but I actually saw this firsthand, and it was a big deal. And oh and money was paid, and they did give it, give the key, you know the code to get in and yeah. get rid of it. And exactly what Rebecca said, and that is happening. And it's three hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's a lot. Not a lot of money. It's a lot of money to an individual. Not a lot of money to a company. But it, you know, you know, you get. You get- it's actually the, the perfect amount of money to ask for. Like these, these guys are horrible, obviously, but they're brilliant because it's yeah. just enough money for them to get quite rich off of this, but just little enough that most 
people, I think, who get it would rather just pay them the money than have to deal with the cops and potentially losing their computer. You know, it's it's just enough money that they probably have it on hand to throw away. Before we go on, Jay, quickly tell us about our new sponsor. Valentine's Day is coming fast. Send something sweet to your sweetheart, giant freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries, starting at $19.99. Visit berries.com, that's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner, type in the password skeptic, and order now. All right, well, next news item is is kind of a pseudo news item in that it was news a couple of years ago. Um, but what I found, and this is about uh, sucralose. You guys hear about um, oh, yeah. fear-mongering online on the internet? Um, sure. Splenda. About Splenda, yeah. So first it was uh-huh. about you know aspartame, aspartame, which is also an artificial sweetener. is going to kill you in a hundred different ways. It's all nonsense. And and then there are the same kinds of, of claims are being made against sucralose. I guess the just don't like the idea of artificial sweeteners, probably because it has the word artificial in it. Uh, but this is a news item actually from a couple of years ago. But what happens now, and I've, I've encountered this now on a regular basis, somebody posts a link to a news article on their Facebook page it, it, or some social media site. It gets liked and linked, and then people start spreading it around as if it's current news. I've had other skeptics send me links to news st- stories as if it's happening right now, not realizing that they, they're linking to something that's four years old. Oh, yeah. Because somebody just, just posted it on their Facebook page or whatever. So that's what happened. This thing just made, it made the rounds again. So these are another type of zombie. They keep re- rising from the dead, coming back to life. We have to debunk them all over again because they have this second life, you know, in social media. Mm-hmm. So, but this one is based upon, uh, a study that was done in 2008, where the researchers claimed that rats that were fed uh, sucralose had a 50% reduction in their good GI bacteria, not as much in not the not good bacteria in species that are potentially pathogenic, that it increased the pH levels in the GI system and that it could cause a, therefore, could potentially cause a large number of negative health consequences. So this is all based upon a single study. This got spread around tremendously by Mercola. You guys know Mercola? Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they're those cough drops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Mercola. A, it's a type of soda like Coke and Pepsi and Mercola. Yeah. Uh, it's a, mine was no? better. <laughs> yeah, Rebecca wins. So, in I my disagree. opinion, he is, he's one of the top health cranks on the internet. <laughs> Anything pseudoscientific against the mainstream, he's all for it. So he linked to this study, you know, and then he, for example, claimed that Oh, the FDA is basing their safety claims for sucralose on, you know, limited rat studies. And then meanwhile, he links to one rat study to make all of his fear-mongering claims about it. It's just total hypocrisy. In any case, sucralose has been extensively studied, and it is completely safe in the amounts that could be reasonably consumed by a human being. You know, there's usually, by the time you develop your safety protocols, you know, you're a couple of orders of magnitude safety buffer built in. Like mm. You would have to drink a hundred, you know, two liter bottles of artificially sweetened 
soda a day every day to like start challenge to- accepted <laughs> yeah but steve oh isn't that true with pretty much anything like Gassy. you could od on water yeah i'm saying you could od on anything but that's that's the point they they these when we figure out like what the toxicity levels are there's usually a couple of orders of magnitude of buffer built in there so then the idea that you know if you like force feed massive amounts of this stuff to rats that it causes problems you, you have to put that into perspective you know everything that you you know in fact that's partly what what's done is that you keep giving them higher doses till you figure out well what dose would it take you know to produce negative effects. Um, so the fact that a rat study showed negative effects from taking whatever substance doesn't mean anything. It's all about dose. But because this study came out in 2008 and was making some alarming claims about sucralose, which has was already on the market, already approved as a a food uh, additive. An expert panel was convened, and they reviewed the study in detail, as well as systematically reviewing all previously relevant research. Let me just give you the exact quote from the expert panel. They found that the study was deficient in several critical areas and that its results cannot be interpreted as evidence that either Splenda or sucralose produced adverse effects in male rats, including effects on gastrointestinal microflora, body weight, and liver enzymes, and nutrient and drug absorption, the study conclusions are not consistent with published literature and not supported by the data presented. So the study itself is worthless, and it is contradicted by all of the other literature that's out there, which says that it's safe. Uh, the most recent systematic review, though this is a separate from uh, this expert panel review, there was a separately published systematic review from 2009, and they found that it was completely safe. Of course, you won't find reference to any of those things in Mercola's diatribe, uh, just the fear-mongering, this one cherry-picked study, which apparently was worthless. There's a separate issue here, though, that's interesting, and that is what's the net effect of consuming non-nutritive sweeteners on weight? Did You guys have heard this controversy? No, supposedly, the more um, of these sweeteners you consume, uh, it leads to more caloric intake. I think that's the claim. Yeah. It's actually interesting. It's a little interesting side issue. It's nothing to do with this fear mongering that we're talking about. But the idea is that, well, there's, there's a couple of different schools of thought that you could, in terms of trying to make sense of this data. One is that if you replace sugary drinks with non-nutritive sweetener-based drinks, diet drinks, then you are reducing your overall caloric intake. You're avoiding those empty calories that you would get from sugary sodas, for example, and that this that would therefore aid in weight control. That's the most simple interpretation. However, there's also the possibility that by consuming foods that are very sweet but that have no calories, somehow hormonally confuses your body and makes you crave even more calories. Is that not true? There's evidence there's evidence to support that. It's also possible that people who drink diet sodas for example consume um non-nutritive sweetener have a false sense of security and that just psychologically maybe not might not be hormonal or physiologic but psychologically and this is a well-established effect the the compensation effect or the rewarding effect they think oh I could eat the Cheesecake because I yeah. I drink diet soda all day. I'll have the uh, fries with the diet coke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it's almost that's I've seen that in a couple of different TV shows or movies. You know, the the fat person 
rolls up to the fast food counter and orders like a 3000 calorie meal with a diet coke you know that that's that's kind of the joke um but there is some reality to the notion of if you if you're doing something like that you might overcompensate you know you give yourself permission to eat more calories other otherwise um so how does all of that balance out what's the net effect are you consuming fewer calories because you're not drinking the sugary soda are you drinking more because of some hormonal effect or because of psychological reasons? And the bottom line is that the jury is still out on huh. that. Uh, I, I don't know that we have the definitive last word, but I did review the most recent reviews. And the reason why I think they're not, there's no definitive answer is because there is no large effect here either way. Uh, there may be a small effect. Maybe a small beneficial effect to avoiding sugars, uh, but as long as you don't use that to give yourself permission to overeat otherwise. Uh, but in any case, there's no big effect there. If there were, it wouldn't be controversial. This, you know, there would be, there would be more of a signal in the research, in my opinion. I also like to point out, last point, that we tend to be myopic in this country. Like we think oh, about the FDA and like people talk about. You know, they can't trust the FDA. But the thing is, we live in a world where we're all looking at the same science. It's not just the FDA. It's a hundred regulatory agencies around the world all coming to the same conclusion. So for, for the conspiracy minded out there, you, you would ha you have to expand this conspiracy to include the Canadian, Australian, English, German, French, you know, all these countries, they're, their regulatory agencies also have to be in on the conspiracy because they're all coming to the same conclusion. There's not like they're disagreeing with each other in terms of the safety of sucralose in this case. Um, so just, you know, just look beyond your own borders. You have to look at the worldwide opinion on topics like this, and then it becomes the consensus becomes much more compelling when you look at the big picture. Yeah, there's conspiracy hmm. theories swarming around this, like it's mind control or you know it's dumbing us down. You know, just be yeah, consumers, they, they, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. all that, all that nonsense. And it's funny how that, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, especially for sucralose. People, people would complain that, oh, sucralose, it incorporates chlorine atoms into the molecule and chlorine is a poison. It's like, whoa, wait a second. You're making a brand new molecule here. All the properties are different. You can't look at it that way. That's not how chemistry works. And you could just keep yeah. going. Yeah. That's the that's the yeah the chemistry yeah. literacy that comes up every now and then, yeah. So sodium chloride, you know, salt, table salt, also based upon a deadly poison as right. well. Yeah, people don't get the basic basic concept of chemistry in that the property of the elements has nothing to do with the property right. of the molecule of that. It's you know you have to look at the the molecules are what have chemical properties. You know that that by definition anyway. Um, so yeah, that that crops up in, a lot in. Um, some sucralose fear mongering. Ooh, it contains chlorine. For more on that, listen to our Google talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Evan, but is there a consensus? Mm. We're going to go from zombies to werewolves on the Ooh. new werewolf diet. I hear this is all the rage. Yeah. So it's interesting. It does kind of relate to the first two items that we spoke about zombies. We talked a little bit about nutrition and therefore we have something called the, the werewolf diet. Oh, <laughs> so. Uh, this is where you roam around London eating people. Absolutely. Oh, I thought it was you, you just eat werewolves. You get super thin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't eat anything. Well, a little known, although soon not to be so little known, diet has gained popularity with celebrities like Demi Moore and Madonna. All right. So hang no, on. No, right not back. Madonna. I gotta, I, 
I gotta stop right there and put this into proper context. Demi Moore and Madonna are nutters for all things woo and new age. New age. Right, just so you know what we're dealing with. So here's the line from the Daily Mail article again, all right? A little-known diet's gaining popularity with, popularity with celebrities like Demi Moore and Madonna, who are reportedly choosing to follow the werewolf diet. The idea is that the moon influences the water in our bodies in the same way that it impacts the tides of the ocean. Oh, God. Right? So when the moon is full or at a new phase, there's a gravitational pull that can last for 24 hours and can affect how much water weight you can gain or lose. <sighs> there are two different kinds of werewolf diets, a basic one and an extended one. With the basic diet, it's a 24-hour day of fasting in which you only drink water and juice during the full moon or new moon. All right, so maybe just... Only drinking liquids has something to do with the fact that you might lose some weight during the course of that day. I don't know. Uh, you know, moon need not apply as far as I'm concerned. But according to the website Moon Connection, which is big into this, uh, this cleanses your body of toxins. And the website also says you can lose up to six pounds of water on that day. Water weight in that day, right? But then there's the extended version of the diet. It starts with fasting at the full moon and then follows with specific eating plans for the various phases of the moon. Full moon, waning moon, new moon, and waxing moon. Uh, for example, during a waxing moon, you're supposed to eat less, right? You don't have to starve yourself, but you need not be sure to stop eating your meals as soon as you begin to feel full. Don't overeat and don't give in to cravings. That's also the optimal oh. time to wax your legs, by the way. <laughs> I was hoping someone would bring that up. Uh, yeah, so during the waning moon, dieters are told not to eat after 6 p.m. when moonlight starts to become visible. Uh, by now, SGU listeners should know that if the moon is involved in any of our discussions, we have to see what our astronomer friend Phil Plate has said. So back in 2011, from his Bad Astronomy blog, he wrote the following. I can say pretty certainly that the gravity of the moon has a negligible effect on our bodies. The gravity of the moon is about the same as if you filled a small house with water and stood about a meter away. The moon is big, but it's very far away. Its gravity is weak at that distance and is completely overwhelmed by the gravity of nearby objects. Dr. Phil, what about the tidal effects, right? When the water in our gullivers and stuff, right? That has an effect, right? Well, yes, it does, but not an effect that makes really any difference. And this is what Phil says about this. Tides are caused by the fact that gravity gets weaker with distance. The moon pulls harder on one side of the Earth than the other, causing the Earth to stretch a bit. But the Earth is almost 13,000 kilometers across, while the moon is 400,000 kilometers away. The human body is maybe only 2 meters across? Most. So the difference in gravity from the moon over a distance of two meters is almost zero. Right. It might as the well be zero. A, yeah, yeah. Right. It, it's incredible. Also, the phases of the moon have absolutely nothing to do with its tidal effect on you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nothing. Yeah. The, when the when the moonlight is out, I mean, give me a break. The only thing you could right. say about that is that the solar tidal effect, which is even less on you than the moon. Uh -huh. Uh, well, is either it's, you know, it's lined up with the moon's tidal effect, you know, during new and full moon, as opposed to at, like, right angles to it at first and third quarter moon. But again, it's all irrelevant because tidal forces across the distance of your skull are 
practically zero. And it's it's so funny with this diet. They say that it's critical that you start the diet the very minute the moon phase begins. Like, you know, you've got less than 60 seconds to get this right. And if you get it wrong, you're going to mess up your diet. And uh, it, it kills me how, how they could turn just fasting, because that's essentially what this is, is just fasting. They just turn that into an entire, you know, the magical diet. You know, I, I could guarantee you right now, if you listen to SGU for 10 hours and fast at the same time, I guarantee you will lose weight. So there, there's my diet right there. Right. Guaranteed. Maybe not, maybe not the, the right proportion of fat to muscle that you want, but you will lose weight. Right. Yeah, but, but, but let's be absolutely clear. We don't recommend fasting. It's not a good or effective way or safe way to lose, right. lose what you want to do is lose excess adipose tissue. Even though Demi Moore and Madonna tell us. Especially and because people. they tell us. <laughs> exactly. But they're so thin and pretty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. It, it must work, therefore. Um, but I'll, I'll add one little tag onto this because medicaldaily.com actually did a little story about this. They, they mentioned the scientific plausibility of this, and this was disturbing, frankly. Here's what they said. They said the link between the moon and our bodies is not completely understood by scientists. However, our moods, emotions tend to rise when there's a full moon and can yield several outcomes that affect health. And they go on to cite a study published in the Journal of Interactive Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery where they claim that there were positive results for patients undergoing heart surgery during a full moon, which is something I don't recall if we t touched on or not. I seem to recall that when it came out. Um, so they're kind of, you know, keeping the door a little bit open on this. And I think that's irresponsible of them to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's all oh BS. Uh, Rebecca, I understood that uh, Bill Nye debated Ken Ham just last night. How did it that go? That did, in fact, happen. Well, I could only watch half of it live because we had SGU business to attend to. But I did watch the rest of it today. And it went pretty much exactly how you think it went. So if you went into this debate thinking that Bill Nye definitely won, then good news, Bill Nye won. If you went into the, the debate thinking that Ken Ham was going to wipe the floor with Bill Nye, then good news, Ken Ham won. Uh, and if you went into the debate thinking that no one would win and that we would all lose, then you were absolutely correct. Uh, there yeah. were no winners. That's a win-win-win. So... Yeah, it's a win-win-win. Everybody wins. <laughs> so as expected, uh, one person in the debate came equipped with a lot of scientific facts, and the other came equipped with the Bible. And, you know, it really was... I, I, what I've been seeing online a lot today um, are people on, quote-unquote, our side, you know, the people who understand evolution, uh, saying that Bill Nye definitely won because he had all of the facts on his side. I've actually seen this written. Bill Nye yeah. won because he had the science and Ken Ham presented absolutely zero evidence for creationism. And True. that's kind of the problem, though, is this feeling like, well, if, you know, if, if all you need to win is have evidence, then we knew who the winner was before the debate even started. But that's not how you win a debate. You win a debate with showmanship and by appealing to the audience and engaging with the audience. And I, I'm not really sure that either one did that besides preaching to the choir, so to speak. Well, let me say this. I, I did watch a lot of the debate and 
uh, what, what struck me was that Bill was, was giving a really fun talk about science and evolution and cosmology. He, he was not so much debating. You know what I mean? He wasn't like really like dissecting and, and destroying Ken Ham's positions and, you know, anticipating his specific arguments. He was sticking to just lecturing about science. Well, so yeah, that was the beginning of the debate, which was, each side got thirty minutes to basically just deliver a lecture. No, even late because I even watched. I watched all you know throughout the whole debate. His responses to questions and to Ken Ham's was often just like teaching about some relevant point, which I think is an interesting strategy if you're not a good debater or if you don't you know yeah. know the creationism itself inside and out. Um, so I, I, I'm not you know I was a little pessimistic about it for all the reasons that you state, and I. Don't think that Bill Nye outdebated Ken Ham, but it is, it was an interesting approach. It, it basically, he just went with his strength. And I guess it's possible that maybe he might have excited somebody in the audience about science, even if it was tangential to this question. Maybe he planted some seeds. Who knows? I don't know. Possibly. I mean, I think that Nye in a way went with a Gish Gallup <laughs> approach where it was hmm. like I didn't find his talk fun at all. I thought his um I thought his slides were really unimpressive and his speech was really uh unfocused. But uh I can see it having that effect because you know he's at one minute he's being really awkward and telling weird anecdotes about bow ties. Uh, another moment he's talking about fish sex, uh, in the middle of the yeah. story about fish sex, suddenly he mentions an unrelated but interesting fact about bacteria. And, you know, he's just giving this huge broad swath of, of actually very specific factoids, but none of them really congealed into a solid, one large, solid, inspiring message, you know. It was a lot of, there are a lot of facts, a lot of very dry facts about biology and about geology. And, you know, he sort of fell into Ham's trap of talking about everything but the topic. Like, the actual topic of the debate was creationism. Uh, but Ken Ham was talking about Noah's Ark. He was talking about morality, the evolution of morality, abortion, gay marriage, the destructive force of secularism. He was talking about all of those things as much as he talked about young earth creationism. And Bill Nye fell into doing the same thing. And like Bill Nye is arguing against animals on the Ark, which, you know, was sort of pulling focus from what he, uh, what I think would have been a better plan, which is, you know, giving really the basics of evolution. Uh, there's been an article making the rounds on Facebook that is uh, a journalist who was there asked creationists who were in the audience to write down their questions for Bill Nye on a piece of paper Ugh. and hold it up and he took pictures of them. They were and horrible. They were, yeah, like these weren't little kids, okay? These were, some of them might have been teenagers, but most of them were grown-ass adults literally saying things like if we came from monkeys why they're still monkeys uh and, and and just just really the most ignorant depressing questions you can imagine that's the audience that was there that night and 
that audience needed so much more than a dry run through the basics of fish sex, you know, no matter how interesting fish sex can be. Uh, they needed some really like basic biology talk. The other thing worth noting is that Ken Ham was really pushing this idea of two different types of science. There was, according to Ken, observational science and historical science. And Ken Ham was arguing that we all agree about the observational science, the things that we can see happening right now. But what we don't agree about are the historical facts. And Bill Nye attempted to say, like, that's not true. There's only one type of science, you know. But Ken Ham wasn't having anything of it. And he was really pushing this idea that if you didn't see it happen, how do you know it happened? Uh, Bill Nye had a really great remark about how there are trees that are older than Ken Ham's earth. Uh, but Ken Ham's response was exactly what we've heard a million times over from creationists, which is, uh, how do you know that God didn't create those trees with the tree rings already in place? You know, the same old, yeah. you know, light being created on the way to earth, you know, from elsewhere yeah. in the universe. And, you know, there's, there's no, combating things like that in this in this debate format it's impossible and i'm sure that a lot of christians are sitting there nodding their heads along with it i thought that bill was going to go in there adequately prepared and you know have some type of agreement beforehand about how to conduct the actual debate because again with the ability for anyone to gish gallop you know just throw out so many different things that you can't possibly answer all of them i mean if that is even remotely possible for Ken Ham to do, then Bill Nye should have rejected the debate. Yeah, a 30-minute free-for-all is a lose for, for the science side. Well, one one thing that I can say as a positive for uh, science, maybe, is that, you know, there, were, there are a lot of, there were a lot of skeptics and um, science communicators who use this as an opportunity to kind of come together and have a bit of a laugh, like the Twitter feed was very funny, and to maybe talk about how we're communicating science and how we can do it better. Um, so, you know, and there are a lot of a lot of people who thought that Bill Nye did do a good job. You know, there are a lot of people who came out of that really feeling like he presented our side appropriately. He, so, he, yeah, he was a, he's a good talker. He had some good notes and he, you know, he did, he was Bill Nye. He, he was what we like yeah. about Bill Nye as a, as a speaker. But he, I agree with you. He didn't really deconstruct creationism. I don't think he really knew his audience and, and he, the, the, I guess the most pessimistic thing to say or cynical is that he allowed himself to be a tool for creationist propaganda. And I mean, it, you know, we've, we had this exact conversation with Eugenie Scott and her advice is don't do it if you are being used for their purposes. Uh, and I think that this is just, this example supports her, her uh, experience. Well, it's time to take a break for one of this week's sponsors, Squarespace.com. Did you guys know Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features to make it easier for you to design an even better website? I did know that. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Over 100 Squarespace employees are on the customer care team, which is based in New York City. Their offices has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. Nice. Do it anyway. <laughs> 
Even though that's super creepy, it starts at only $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. That is a good deal. I mean, 8 bucks with a free domain name is pretty pretty nice. Yeah, but you could get 10% off if you use the special offer code SGU2. That's SGU, the number two. So yeah, Squarespace is an all-in-one solution. You get your domain name, get your hosting done, and you have a really great interactive tool for building your website yourself with all the support you need to make it happen. You can create beautiful sites that are useful for uh, your blog or online store or whatever it is that you need. Thank you, Squarespace, for supporting the SGU. All right, guys. Let's get back to our show. All right, Evan. uh, Get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Thank you, Steve. I will do just that by playing for you last week's Noisy. Here we go. I'm quite happy to be an atheist because I think actually God likes atheists better. We never ask him for anything. We're not bothering him all the time. Does the name Dave Allen sound familiar to anybody? Certainly it did to a lot of our listeners. They know who Dave Allen was. He, he had died in, 19, in 2005, but uh, an Irish comedian who, you know, made regular television appearances in the United Kingdom. He had a, uh, he also in the 80s and 90s, he was considered Britain's most controversial comedian regularly poking uh, indignation at his frequent highlighting of political hypocrisy and his disregard uh, for religious authority, as, you know, kind of shown in that little bit of a clip. And he was a religious skeptic of some note. So lots of listeners got that right. There were, you know, well over 100 correct answers, I would say, that came in between all uh, all of our sources. And of those names, one was drawn, and guess what? Trinock. Trinock's name was drawn this Again. week. We haven't, we haven't heard from him in a while. Wow. How you doing? And congratulations. And what we'll do now is uh, just jump on over to uh, the brand new one. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Here we go. This week's noisy. I must apologize for the, the uh, sound of my voice. It's the absolute best I can do uh, in a human atmosphere. Now that was clearly somebody who has consumed a lot of helium. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 who was it, and why is it significant, and what does it have to do with uh, who's that noisy and science and skepticism? Well, perhaps some of our listeners will tell us because they're going to answer it, and they're going to send us their answer at our email address for noises, which is wtn at theskepticsguide.org, or they're going to post it on their on our message boards which is sguforums.com. Have fun with this one. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. You're welcome. couple of quick emails this week. First one is a follow-up to our Thorium car discussion from a couple of months ago. This one comes from Roger from New Zealand, who writes, uh, credit to Gert from New Zealand for letting me know about this. Sorry, Evan, I think it was you looking forward to the Thorium-powered cars. I waited a while before sending this because I was sure someone else would do it, but it seems not. He gives then he gives a couple of links to discussions about the uh, the thorium based car that are highly critical of it. So you know, so just to summarize our discussion, this is a, a company in Massachusetts that uh, claims to have plans for what's essentially a, a power plant that generates heat using a laser and thorium, and then uses that heat to create steam, turn a turbine, create electricity. The claim is that they could miniaturize that. They're working on getting that small enough and light enough to fit in a car. Then you could actually drive the car powered only 
you know, ultimately by the thorium. Interesting idea, but we just didn't have enough information to really dissect the claim itself. I wasn't even clear what the hell was going on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, it was never, we were never clear on whether or not there was, all right, you got a laser and thorium, but is it a thorium laser or are you l- using th- a laser to heat up the thorium? I, I wasn't really clear on that. I'm still not clear on that. Yeah. I've read, you know, multiple other dissections of the claim and they, they, they're not clear on it, but they, they essentially say something along the lines of, well, let's assume this is what he's talking about and let's crunch the numbers <laughs> and see what that implies. There does seem to be a, a, a widespread belief among physicists and, and, uh, energy people writing about this that this guy's a bit cranky. That, you know, he's, you know, he's not publishing papers, you know, demonstrating any, any process or method. Mm-hmm. Um, you could argue that this is because he's developing it for, you know, industrially, but it makes it kind of hard to take it seriously when you don't have any actual information to go on. Some of the numbers that were being thrown around, I think a lot got lost in translation with the media, the idea of the car driving for a century. Do you guys remember that? But even at the time, it's, yeah. you know, there are, Many other quotes saying that it would be like 150,000 miles or 300,000 miles or something like that, you know, but which is a more reasonable estimate. 100 years is, is I, th- I don't know where that came from. The car is going to disintegrate before the thorium runs out. So, or, but just the idea, it's just too long, you know. Yeah. So, uh, Roger links through to a, uh, a post, for example, um, on Live Grenades blog, uh, which is a pretty good dissection. Again, making assumptions, then this assumption is that the system uses a laser to heat thorium to then generate the heat and then calculates, well, how much heat can you get out of eight grams of thorium? Uh, and comes up with the calculation that it could, that, that this would result in the amount of energy equivalent to driving something like 120,000 miles. So certainly not the, not the 300,000 that the company quotes, not the century that somehow got into the media. But, you know, that's okay. 120,000 is still pretty impressive. But, 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 you know, it's, this is assuming, you know, efficiencies that are, are go beyond nuclear reactors today, like fission reactors. So the, he has, is, has certainly hasn't provided any kind of evidence to substantiate a, the process that he's talking about here. And also, you have to include in this calculation the energy needed to run the laser and what, you know, what's the excess energy that you're getting out of the whole system, including all the losses, you know, because of the second law of thermodynamics. So until you ha- actually have a working model and you can demonstrate some kind of efficiencies, you know, throwing around numbers in terms of like how much energy you're going to get out of this system is, is just making stuff up. But the theoretical limits, you know, are on the order of magnitude of like 120 or something thousand miles, you know, off of the eight grams of thorium that the company was claiming would be like the fuel pellet you know, in their system. But that's also making assumptions about what the system actually is. There's, I read another, other blogs that said that, that were assuming that he was talking about a thorium laser, not, not using a laser to heat thorium. And, you know, uh, nuclear lasers are out there. You know, there's a, you, you know, you can't, people did develop a uranium based laser, uh, for example. Again, there's no reason to assume the energy levels and the efficiencies that he's talking about, the, the owner of the company is talking about. 
Now he says he's developing a bladeless Tesla turbine based on Tesla technology. So just, you know, some people, sure, that's hype. You know, when you start throwing around the term Tesla, it's like you're basically branding yourself a crank. Well, Steve, I mean, is he talking about Nikolai Tesla, the inventor, or or, or Tesla, the car brand? No, no. He said no yeah. relation to the car company. He's basing it on okay. Nikola Tesla. <laughs> All right. All you know, right. if you're in the energy world and you invoke the name of Tesla, almost by definition, you are a crank. Yep. Um, at the very least, that was a horrible and a naive marketing decision, given what this guy's trying to do. Of course, if he produces a working thing, then, it, then none of it matters, but uh, it certainly is a huge red flag. In any case, and none of this has anything to do with legitimately using thorium as a nuclear fission you know, power plant. Steve, to sum up... Is it BS or what? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm trying. It's, I think that I've moved closer <laughs> to the BS conclusion uh-huh. from, you know, after reading another dozen articles about it, you know, time has gone by, people have had a chance to dissect it, but, but I can't definitively say that there's no plausibility here at all. I mean, it's just, a, but I don't, but I still am left without enough details. People are just assuming what this guy's actually talking about. And he's he's very vague and sort of general in his description of what the technology actually is, hmm. which either means he's hiding it or he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm still hopeful for someone out there turning thorium into something we can <laughs> definitely use in some way. Car, house, I don't care. You're a member of the Thorium Brotherhood, right, Evan? I am, yes. Yeah. All right. The next email comes from Gareth, who doesn't give his location, who writes, I listen to your podcasts every week, but this is the first time I've emailed in with a question. I was listening to the segment last week about quantum entanglement and how information cannot be transmitted Transmitted FTL, which is faster than light for those in the know. I'll propose <laughs> a thought experiment. Imagine you have a rigid cylinder that has a length of, say, two light years. Yes, I know we would need some sort of super material to keep it rigid at this length, but it is a thought experiment after all. On both ends of the cylinder, the letters of the alphabet are engraved around in circumference and both ends sync up. If I was at one end and somebody else is at the other end and I turn the cylinder to spell out how are you and the person at the other end receives the message and responds with I'm fine. Now, because this is a rigid cylinder, both ends should turn at the same time. Isn't this correct? And as if as I'm communicating with somebody over the distance of two light years and getting meaningful information back, how can this be possible if no information can travel faster than the speed of light? Bob, this is an easy one. Debunk this in 20 seconds or less. My answer actually depends on what you mean by super material. If by that you mean a perfectly rigid rod, then the answer is probably yes. Uh, but if, if instead you mean that the rod uh, is at the limit of what is physically possible uh, in this universe, then the answer is unfortunately no. Uh, and this answer applies to both rotating the rod or just hitting it uh, so that it moves linearly. It's pretty much the same thing, I would I would guess. So as we know, matter is made of particles, right? We all know that. And these particles interact as the standard model of particle physics says they interact. And that includes no influences being allowed to propagate faster than light. That's pretty much the bottom line right there. So think about it. You're essentially setting up uh, some sort of compression wave by either uh, turning or pushing this rod, this uh, this this rigid rod. And that depends on the elasticity and the density of the material. The particles have to communicate to the next one in the line that they are actually moving. There's really no way around that. There's not going to be any sort of instantaneous communication. It's just they've got to, it's got to know that something's happening to its neighbors and then it kind of 
follows the laws of physics and follows suit. So we don't really notice that in everyday life because um, the objects we use are small and relatively dense, and it happens so fast that uh, the, the compression waves are just so small. Um, so if you actually hit a nail, I'm sure we could detect the fact that the nail tip moves a fraction of a second after the back is hit. Uh, you wouldn't think that, but I'm sure that, that, that that's exactly what happens. So even for something as hard as diamond, this effect would travel at about 12,000 meters per second. Uh, so it would be very, very fast. But of course, that's not even close to the speed of light, let alone exceeding it. So what I'm talking about is essentially the speed of sound. Uh, this effect would propagate at the speed of sound approximately in that material. So sure, though, if you had a perfectly rigid body, which, uh, which, which goes against laws of physics, relativity, everything, uh, then you could get past these problems. But relativity says that, and, and other science says that this is impossible. It's kind of like saying, you know, if I ask a genie to make this for me, what would happen? Well, sure, it would happen as you wished it, but that doesn't mean that it could actually happen in this universe. Yeah, if your premise is, first let's break the laws of physics, then it becomes possible. You'll know, right. be your premise. But he didn't realize that you... was his premise. He didn't realize that. Because you're right, because it's like saying, well, light moves instantaneously, because it looks instantaneous to me. If I turn on a flashlight, it instantly appears across the room. Appears uh, to. But it's not. It's no more instantaneous. You know, the turning of the rod is no more instantaneous than the than the turning on of a flashlight. It's It propagates according to the laws of physics and cannot exceed the speed of light. Yeah, and in his question, he kind of implies that it would need to be it would need to be a super material to keep it rigid um, across that distance, and and yeah, but it, you would need more than that in, in order for that effect to propagate uh, instantaneously. It would not. It would need to be well beyond super material. It would be it, break the law. Yeah, it'd be a supernatural material, material, not a super material. You're right. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys, we've got to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors, Hulu Plus. Steve, you've probably tried Hulu.com. <laughs> but Hulu Plus literally has so much more. With Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere, on your couch or on any smart device. Like Yuri Geller, A Life Stranger Than Fiction, one of my favorite <laughs> new documentaries I found on Hulu Plus. It's all about the not-at-all fictional life of famous not-at-all fictional psychic Yuri Geller. I recommend watching um, an episode of Shark, Shark Tank for January of this year where Mark Cuban totally takes down a pseudoscientist. Epic show. Watch it now. Hulu Plus lets you watch those shows plus thousands, literally thousands more hit TV shows, movies. You can watch it in the living room or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. It's really incredible. And only seven ninety nine a month. That's it. You can catch up on all your shows, old favorites, movies as you want them, wherever you want. So go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU, and that's the special offer for our listeners, and you will get a two-week free trial. That's right. Go to HuluPlus.com slash SGU for your two-week free trial. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everybody ready for this week? Have you recovered yet from the crushing defeat of last week? <sighs> oh, God. Last week was a little Let's rough. talk about it. A little rough. It was rough. Good. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Your spirits have not been broken. Excellent. It doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. <laughs> Here we go. Not from the Bible. <laughs> Item number one. 
Scientists report strong evidence confirming the wave-particle duality of sound, demonstrating the coherent transport of quasi-particles called phonons. Item number two, researchers have published the results of a phase three clinical trial of an HIV vaccine, demonstrating greater than 80% efficacy in preventing initial infection. And item number three, scientists have developed the first prosthetic hand with real-time near-natural sensory feedback, allowing sensation of grasping pressure, texture, shape, and hardness of held objects. Bob, go first. Start with three, the uh, the prosthetic hand, real-time near-natural sensory feedback. Um, yeah, we've made so many advances with prosthetics that this doesn't really shock me that much. Um, it's pretty awesome, and I hope it's true, but uh, nothing's really leaping out at me. That that uh, doesn't make much sense. Let's see. The second one, phase three clinical trial, greater than 80% of efficacy. Oh, boy. Eh, my first thought is that this is one of those things that I would have heard it if that was if that were true, but I, I try to uh, avoid feeling that way because Steve seems to find stuff that I haven't heard about. So I'm not sure about that one. Crap. All right, so number one, we had uh, wave-particle duality of sound. Uh, I've heard of phonons. It could, this kind of makes sense, but invoking this whole wave-particle duality, I'm not buying it. Phonons are more macroscopic, aren't they? Yeah, there's something about that I don't like. All right, so I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to say the wave-particle duality phonons is fiction. Ah, hmm. all right. <laughs> What's that? Evan? It's really hard to disagree with Bob when when it comes to these kinds of things, because I know he's pretty up to speed on it. But in any case... Feel free in this case. Well, <laughs> confirming the wave-particle duality of sound. You know, I'm, I was thinking that one was fiction only because uh, of the name phonons. It sounds too much like photons, and it just kind of would be a play off of, off of that to try to get us. Um, the next one about the phase three clinical trial of an HIV vaccine. There's not really a lot there to... to, to, to parse i mean it either happened or it didn't um but maybe the phase three part of it here is is the part that uh this could be maybe the first phase three trial of a vaccine that made it this far i don't know the last one the first prosthetic hand with real-time near natural sensory feedback this is the uh luke skywalker hand right uh the uh, the darth vader hand so, uh, I guess it's between the HIV one and the phonons one. I'll say it's the phonons one. I just think it's too close to photons and you're messing with, with us there. Okay. Jay? Okay, this one about the hand, that's the one out of the three I would believe the first. I think that, that them figuring out a way to add sensation was on the way. I'm sure a lot of people have been working on it. So, yeah, I believe that one. I think that that is definitely science. This second one about the 80% efficacy in preventing the initial infection of HIV. That would be amazing if that were true. Because I just don't know. I don't know how hard it is. I, I would imagine that people have been working on it for a long time. All right. And then this first one, um, the wave-particle duality of sound. I don't know. I mean, I, I, thought, um, I thought that that came out a long time ago. Were they studying that? I don't know. That one just doesn't seem like that big of a groundbreaker to me. I think uh, because I I thought I read something a while ago about that, I'm going to pick the one about the HIV. Okay, and Rebecca. So I'm I'm with the group here. It seems like everybody feels like the prosthetic hand is the most uh, believable, and I agree. Sensing pressure and hardness is something that I 
I do believe that scientists have been working on and have been already doing. So, you know, they've already created things that can sense pressure and, and hardness and things. So it's, it's not out of the ordinary for them to have created a usable prosthetic that can do that. I, and I also thought that phonon was a made up nonsense word, <laughs> but, but Bob seems to recognize it <laughs> as a real word. <laughs> so that item became more plausible to me once Bob said that. So yeah, it is between the phonon one and the HIV vaccine. Bob said he didn't want to go with the, I would have heard it if it's true thing, but I do feel very strongly about that, about the HIV vaccine. That, that, that's huge. A, uh, Phase three clinical trial showing more than 80% efficacy in preventing initial infection. That, that would be huge. Like until now, the, the biggest successes I think have been with things that have been kind of called vaccines, but not really vaccines. They're really just, uh, very early treatments like the so-called baby who was born with HIV being treated and then being seemingly cured. That wasn't a vaccine. It was just early treatment, but it was reported as vaccine in a lot of press. So I feel like an actual vaccine would be really big news, especially one that that's, that that's, that is that effective. So I'm going to go with that one as the fiction. I'm, I'm with Jay. All right. So we got a split decision. Jay and Rebecca think that the HIV vaccine one is fiction. Bob and Evan think that the phonons is fiction. Oh boy. Yeah, I'm stuck with the, the science or fiction loser for this year. Thanks. <laughs> ha! Wow. <laughs> you don't get to say that often, but. So you all agree, apparently, that scientists have developed the first prosthetic hand with real time, near natural sensory feedback, allowing sensation of grasping pressure, texture, shape, and hardness of held objects. You all think that one is science? Wait, texture? Oh, yeah, shit. you forgot. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> and that one is science. <gasps> Yay. That one is very cool science. Yeah. First time. Uh, they're, you know, of course, in the press releases, they're calling it a bionic hand, but what they, what the researchers did was they developed these really small, you know, sensory nodes, you know, in the, in the prosthetic fingers that connect to, um, a computer chip. So the signals that are generated by that are too crude for the body to really interpret. So it needs to be processed into something that's a little bit more physiological. And then they connected the, that output to the median and ulnar nerve stumps in the person's upper arm. So they actually created a wire nerve interface. They, you know, again, very tiny just to, in order to stimulate, you know, part of the nerve. And, uh, and it worked. You know, the person who was using it, um, just, it was just one person they tested it on was able to, they have mechanical prosthetic hands. The problem is if you're gripping something and you have no sensory feedback, you have to visually look and see like when to stop gripping. But he was able to sense because of the pressure when to stop gripping without looking at the object that he was holding. And it was, he was able to identify objects to feel its basic shape, whether it was rough or smooth. Wow. Cool. Very cool. That's big. Very cool. One problem, one limitation with this is it's not portable. Uh, they gotta, they gotta miniaturize everything and, you know, and then after three months, they removed the wires, you know, because they didn't want to leave wires in for too long. But that was long enough for the scar tissue to form. There were one unknown here was once the scar tissue formed around the wires inserted into the nerves, whether that would prevent them from functioning, but it seemed to function fine, even after it was all fibrous in. So. Cool. Yeah. Nice little advance. Just a stepping stone, but, you know, 
certainly getting close to Luke Skywalker's hand. You know. Yep. See that? <laughs> one step closer. All right. I guess we'll go back to number one. Scientists report strong evidence confirming the wave-particle duality of sound, demonstrating the coherent transport of quasi-particles called phonons. Bob and Evan think this one is fiction. Jay and Rebecca buy it. And this one is science. (laughs) (laughs) Wave-particle duality? No way. GWJ, everybody. (laughs) GWJ. This comes from the Berkeley Lab. Yeah, this is uh, this is cool. So the researchers find what they're calling unambiguous evidence for coherent phonons in super lattices. Now these are quasi particles. They're not actual particles of sound. They're quasi particles because they behave like particles of sound in the super lattice. What they were able to do was show the transition from sort of the wave-like and the particle-like properties as the sound moved through the lattices. So the, 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 what their study shows, so this has been known, this has been theorized previously. You know, there's evidence to show that th- these phonons exist, but this is, they're calling this the first unambiguous demonstration of the coherent transport of phonons. And the, the, a lot of the interesting discussion is in like what would the possible applications of this be, including phonon based lasers, I guess, which would mm-hmm. shoot a beam of sound of a coherent frequency, uh, which is interesting. Uh, an independent lab is working on what they're calling weirding modules. Which Get out of here. No, no, I'm looking. <laughs> I love it already. <laughs> which will turn sound into a killing weapon. Uh, so like, why why do you go back It's the weirding way. Zing, take that nickel back. So yeah, I thought this was cool. This was, I, I, I had not heard of phonons before. It seemed like the really? perfect gotcha word because it does sound made up. Yeah. But it sounds like complete I, Steve, nonsense. I read about this news item a while ago. This isn't new. Really? You've probably read about phonons before, Jay, but this is a new study that just came out that just is providing further evidence. But they're, now they're calling really, now we've really proven it. These phonons actually exist. Yeah. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, phonons aren't, aren't like photons, guys. They're not particles. They're, they're quasi particles. Well, I, from my understanding, um, it's like the temporary state that yeah the air particles take to transmit the sound. It's like a you know it's fleeting. Exactly. It's not right. it's not actual particles. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay, let's go on mm-hmm. to number two. Researchers have which published the results of a phase three clinical trial of an HIV vaccine demonstrating greater than eighty percent efficacy in preventing initial infection, and that one is the fiction. Boo, though. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, for us, the, there has been a phase three clinical trial of an HIV vaccine, although the efficacy was only 32%, which is pretty modest. Yeah, but still, that's, that's still good. Yeah, I mean, that's still pretty far along, but it's still, it's not like, like, oh, let's go out and vaccinate everybody. Good. The pro, it's been really tricky. I mean, as much success as we've had in the antiretroviral therapy drugs, which are really essentially turned HIV into a chronic illness, the vaccines have been really hard, technically difficult to develop, uh, just because of the nature of the, of that virus. I mean, the, 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 this virus evolved to evade the immune system. And it, it, uh, the, the bits that are exposed to the immune system rapidly evolve even throughout the infection of an individual. Uh, and the ones that we, that don't change so fast are hard to, to get the immune system to react to. So it's just been really tricky. No one's really figured out, ex- you know, how to get High enough antibody titers against parts of the, uh, of the HIV that will provide long lasting high degree of 
immunity enough to prevent the, the virus from establishing a foothold and therefore, you know, preventing infection. But I was basing this off of was a report saying, essentially making the point that if we are ever going to beat HIV, we have to develop a, a vaccine. Um, the only way to really, to the durable end to AIDS will require an HIV vaccine development. If we got the vaccine, what do you think it would be like? Do you think it would be like a one-shot deal or you have to go every <laughs> so often? I mean, prop because it's been so difficult to get good titers and good resistance, I would imagine you would need booster shots. It'd probably be a two or three injection scheme with boosters every so many years would be, would be what I would suspect. I mean, if, you know, a one-shot vaccine would be a home run. I mean, I doubt that we're going to go from not being able to develop anything that's worthwhile to all the way to an optimal vaccine. But at this point, uh, something reasonably like 80% would be a good threshold. If you get above 80%, it's, you know, that would be, uh, would significantly decrease the spread of the disease. But pro progress is being made. It's just this is what this one's taking time. You know, it's technically difficult. All right. Well, good work, Jay and Rebecca. Thank you. I like, like an even mix. That's good. This was a good balanced week. As long as you're happy. As long as I'm happy, that's what I'll, that's what matters. You're right, Evan. Very perceptive of you. Yep. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I have a quote sent in by a listener named Andrew Antaro. Andrew sent me the Breaking Bad audio clip last year, those of you might remember. So this is a quote from a friend of mine, Brian Trent's, one of his favorite historical figures. Can anybody guess? Yes. Some someone Brian, Egyptian. Brian Trent? Uh, Hypatia. Hypatia. Oh, I knew it. I was I couldn't think of the name. Karl Marx. <laughs> the the ancient say. Greek Alexandrian philosopher from Egypt. She was awesome. My friend Brian wrote a really cool book about her. Like it was kind of like a oh, dramatized gosh. history. What do you call that? It was historically accurate, but it was a drama. Historical fiction. That's it. Thank you, Rebecca. So her wonderful quote is, Fables should be taught as fables, myths as myths, and miracles as poetic fantasies. To teach superstitions as truths is a most terrible thing. The child mind accepts and believes them, and only through great pain and perhaps tragedy can he be in later years relieved of them. Hypatia. She said that a long time ago. Like, what was that, 300 AD? Probably not in English. Before 350 she was killed? to 370 AD. Yeah, 350 to Born AD 350 to 370, died 415. Oh. So, okay. so they're not sure exactly when she was born, you mean? 40, 40 yeah. to 60 years old. Well, guys, we are getting closer and closer to Nexus, Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. Really looking forward to it. Well, Lawrence Krauss's keynote, uh, he finally sent this in where it's going to be. He's going to talk about Bob. Mm-hmm. Back which, time. Which we thought was strange, but he was really adamant that he um, he'd be allowed to talk about Bob for an hour. So we said, you know. Fine. I thought we were trying to increase sales of new tickets. No, the uh, the conference behind the scenes is going really well. Uh, the the all the lectures that we have planned, they all look fantastic. You know, there's a lot of vetting and and talking to the speakers about this, and I'm really excited as well because of the stimulus response show that we're going to have on Friday night. That was a blast last year. I can't wait to go to that again. Yeah, and the improv group is coming back. Plus, there'll be more goodies. Uh, there'll be a drinking skeptically, as always. Uh, there'll be workshops all day that Friday. And, of course, uh, we will be not only on the main stage during the conference, but we'll be having a private recording for SGU listeners. Which is already full. Oh, probably, and it be. is full. Yeah, so. it's already full. Got to get, got to get early. Got to register early. We want the private recording. And, yeah, I'm giving two workshops on critical thinking. 
Holy which, I mean, Jesus. Doesn't get better than that. You get to listen to me talk about critical thinking for an hour. Sweet. And then after the workshop, Steve, can people come up and talk to you? You know, nope. it depends on what kind of mood I'm in. <laughs> no. <laughs> I no, they can't. <laughs> <laughs> Are any of you guys going to join me? Steve, no. if, on I, stage? if I can get the day off, I will be there. I'll be sitting in the audience throwing uh, jokes at you, about you, and to you. All right. So it'll be with me plus uh, undisclosed possible other rogues. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Right. I hope so. All right. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to huluplus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.